bringing forth the words of the Son in a doctrinal explanation, we come to Hebrews chapter 7, and he has taken us from before creation, before that universe was spoken into existence, to the cross and beyond in anticipation of his coming and the kingdom. And we begin our study in Hebrews chapter 7. And we pick it up in verse 11. And this individual, the individual who Hebrews chapter 1 says it was the hands of the Son. If we went to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17, it says that all of that expanse of the universes and those hundreds of trillions of stars were created in Christ and then spoken out of him into existence. And that that same person in that verse sustains all of this by his word. That when we think of heavens in the Bible, that expanse that we just looked at is the second heaven. The first heaven, as you go outside, is the clouds and the atmosphere around the earth that we can see with our naked eyes. The second heavens are those trillions of stars, each of them trillions of mi- 30 trillions of miles apart, that even the speed of light, I think, is 386,000 miles per second, that it would take forever for the light to get from a star to earth, so he had to create them and the light at the same time so that Adam could see the light from those stars trillions of miles away. Terry and I just read through the Psalms, and he reiterates, David does, that the moon is actually, its purpose in the sky primarily is to give a calendar. And God's calendar is a lunar calendar. So he did all of this in the fourth day of creation, what we saw up there, and he just put all these things in place. He spoke them, as Paul says in Hebrews 1, God the Father says, Son, it is your hands. I have exalted you to the highest place. You are the one. Your throne, O God, the Father says, is above all things. So by the time you come to Hebrews 7, which is, if Hebrews is the foundational explanation to Jews, Hebrews 7 is the foundational chapter in the book, just like if Romans is the foundational gospel book to Gentiles, Romans 8 is the foundational chapter in that book, and we'll see how these two chapters parallel each other. We're going we're gonna to come from the galaxies and from heaven, and we're going to zero in. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, help us to, in some level, understand the vastness of the work of your Son and to step from a position where those galaxies were spoken instantly by his lips, designed by his hands, held together by his power, to step down from that to purchase life for each of us, to give us the opportunity to love him back, Father, help us to just grasp more of what he has done today. In Jesus' name, amen. In Hebrews chapter 7, we pick it up in verse 11. We were looking into this person, Melchizedek, which I am convinced is that same individual. 
and we are moving on from that to just looking at Christ, but we're making a transition beginning in verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, referring to Psalms 110 and verse 4. He'll do that multiple times throughout the rest of the chapter. Verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in regard to the tribe, that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So every time I read, I, I reshape my list. I gave you a list of 17 things last week that are descriptions of Melchizedek, that the description itself can only relate to Jesus Christ. So we are shown that this individual who brought Abraham bread and wine, who blessed him by himself and promised him by himself, we have number 18 on our list here, that this priest, like Melchizedek, came by the power of an indestructible life. In other words, an almighty, perfect Yahweh means at its base level, self-existing, all in me, needing nothing. I am. That's what I am in the Old and New Testament refers to. So he tells Moses, he says, tell them that I am is sending you, the self-existing, almighty, personally relationship, God. So John gives us, I am the bread of life. John gives us, I am the light of the world. He gives us, I am the gate. I am the shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine, and you are my branches. So he is saying in each of those I am's, he says to the, the Pharisees who want to kill him that he knew Abraham. How can you know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old and Abraham's been dead forever. He says, I'm the God of the living and not the dead. He says, and before Abraham was, I am. When he is walking on the water and the disciples think it's a ghost and they're shuddering with fear, he says, take heart. It is I. The one that Paul is describing, the Father describing in Hebrews chapter 1, the one that we read here on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, this priest from the tribe of Judah came. For it is declared, you are a priest forever 
in the order of Melchizedek. I want to look at this, what I call progressive dispensationalism. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Not important that you use that word or that you understand what it means. But God doesn't do mulligans if you golf. Or if you don't golf, he doesn't do do-overs. He doesn't, they mess that up, I'll start over. Everything he does is perfect. Everything he designs is perfect. Everything he gives to man for their purpose is perfect. It is all carried forward. So we've got a list of seven things there that it is a progression in and of itself. It is not complete. It is just an example of as soon as sin happened in the garden, he had already promised them in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, you're free, don't eat from that tree, or you will die. They ate from the tree, and now the consequences. But in verse 15 of chapter 3, he says to Satan, I will put enmity, they will be enemies, enemies between you and the woman and between your offspring, which ultimately leads to the Antichrist, and hers. He, the descendant of Eve, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the prophecy given immediately when sin comes on the scene on earth is that I will send a descendant through Eve's womb that will crush your head, Satan and you will strike his heel. So the striking of his heel is the cost of our salvation. It is Jesus on the cross. In John chapter 12, Jesus explains, I think in about verse 26, that Satan will now be driven out as I am lifted up. He crushed Satan's head at the cross. That is the sentence that is the price for Satan's wanting to be God, and the full atonement of that will be made at the white throne. In Genesis chapter 5, if you stop there, you don't have that in your notes. But we have prophecy coming first. The first end times prophet in the Bible is Enoch. So if you looked at Genesis chapter 5, and I will just point out to you, if you count um, verse 3, Adam, and then you see Seth, number 2 in verse 3. In verse 6, you see Enosh, number 3. In verse 9, you see Kenan, number 4. In verse 12, you see Mahalalel, number 5. And then in verse 15, you see Jared, and then you see number six from Adam, and it's actually, I don't know if I can even count it right, Adam one, Seth two, Enosh three, Kenan four, Mahalalel five, Jared six, and the seventh in the list is in 18 is Enoch. Enoch is a man who walked faithfully his whole life, and he died, at, he never died, he was taken up to heaven like Elijah was, at the age of 365, and we see here as we count, he's number seven in the genealogy. He is, Adam is created in the year 4,115, according to the Bible. Enoch is 3,493 years B.C., so in that time frame between that and 
3,128. In that span, this man lived. So if you hold your finger in Genesis, because we'll be right back there and go to Jude in your Bible, we'll see that that man was the first end times prophesy, prophes prophecy expert in the Bible. He actually prophesied what we know as the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. So in Jude... Chapter 1, only one chapter, verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam. So we know it's the same individual because we just counted them. There's no other Enoch in the Bible, and he is exactly the seventh from Adam. Prophesied about them. He's prophesying Jude is here about the last days before Christ returns, and he is quoting Enoch. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with his thousands upon thousands of holy ones. Now, if we went to Revelation 19 or um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul will say, this includes you. When Jesus comes in all his glory, because you believed our message, Paul says, these thousands upon thousands of holy ones are angels and you. You're going to come back with him. Enoch prophesied that over 3,000 years before Christ, over 5,000 years before us. Verse 15. To judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. He's quoting Enoch, which is passed down through Jewish tradition, and we know it's the Enoch of Genesis 5, where he is prophesying the return of Christ to judge the world. Now let's go to Genesis chapter 12. We're just going to kind of zip through these. We're, we're showing that the prophecy in Genesis 3 is carried forward. Obviously, the prophecy from Enoch is carried forward. It hasn't even happened yet. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, which is probably the only reason God hasn't taken down the United States yet because of Donald Trump putting the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, acknowledging Jew Jerusalem as the capital of Judah and not the capital of Palestine. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and I, whoever curses you, I will curse. Look at the nations like Babylon and um, Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and Germany, all the, the countries that have tried to take down the Jews. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Apostle Paul explains to us that that's the announcing of the gospel. So Paul comes back to Genesis 12, 3, many times in Romans and many times in Hebrews, explaining that the gospel came through it to us through Abraham, um, we are descendants of Abraham, Romans chapter 4, and that is carried forward. Genesis 15 is the promise of the land. Um, go to Exodus chapter 20. Paul has, is talking about the law in Hebrews chapter 7. And the law came because of the transgression. Paul will explain to us it had to come so that it would benefit those who are guilty to know that they are guilty. So if, you're, if someone, a vandal, takes down a sign on 251 that says 55 miles an hour 
and you go 100 miles an hour on that road, you've broken the law. But when the sign is put back up, it's saying, you broke the law, and here's how much you broke it by. That's the purpose of the law, that we would recognize we are sinners, that we would, as Paul says, use the law as a schoolmaster or a guardian that leads us to Christ. So we have the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and look at verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. That's the purpose of the law, and the purpose of the law is to lead you to Jesus Christ, not to scare you, but to give you the fear of the Lord, knowing that the Lord is the only one who can remove your sin condition. Turn to Jeremiah 31, the verses that Mom read last week. Paul is going to refer to this in Hebrews chapter 7. Paul and Jesus both refer to these verses often. This is, we have gone from Abraham, 2091 B.C., to Moses, about 600 years later, 1445 B.C., the New Covenant, we're now in about 595 B.C. as we're progressing in God's plan. And Jeremiah, who lived a very difficult life, would have written down these seven verses with great joy. We're going to read the first four verses because they are the New Covenant. When Jesus says on the night that he is having this supper with his disciples, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's doing two things. He is saying, this is Jeremiah 31, and my blood is the payment of that covenant. So he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's referring to this covenant. Verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, which he did at the Last Supper and at the cross with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors, meaning Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and the law, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, I will write it on their hearts, I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here is the statement that Paul continually quotes. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. He cannot do that without the cross. So the new covenant in his blood, he is telling his disciples, when I raise from the dead, the blood that I shed will be the, the power of God to remove your sins so that your sins and wickedness will be remembered no more. The love that we saw in the psalm up there that is written as expansive as all this creation is, God's love for us is higher. He proved that, Romans 5, 8, at the cross. Now let's move forward another 600 years to Luke chapter 24. We've gone prophecy, brought that forward with us. 
promise brought that forward. Law brought that forward. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. The law is perfect. We are not. And that says that we need Christ. We bring that forward to the new covenant. The new covenant is brought to the cross where Jesus' blood invokes the new covenant of Jeremiah chapter 31. In Luke chapter 24, this is the great commission that is overlooked, the one in Luke, where he tells us how someone comes to know him as Savior. He has explained to them all of Luke 24 is proof, proof to the women, proof to the disciples, proof to the two on the road to Emmaus, and now final proof to the eleven as they are gathered in verse 36 through the end of the chapter. And this is the message of salvation in the new covenant. Verse 46, this is what is written. And we can go back to Psalm 16 and Psalm 69 and other places. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer, Isaiah 53, and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I am apostolizing you. I am proving to you that I raised from the dead. I am sending, that's what apostle means, I am sending you as my witnesses, and you are to say to people that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be your introduction to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So then the Apostle Paul, we can actually turn to Revelation 21 in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, a verse we learned on Wednesday night, it is the Apostle Paul who gives the theology of the prophecy, the promise, the law, the covenant, the resurrection, the gospel, and the perfection. Paul explains all of it. And Paul in 2 Timothy 2.8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Paul's gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't complete until Paul puts his pen down. Not Paul's words, not about Paul, from Christ, through Paul, always meant to be before creation, that he would explain doctrinally all of the Bible to a follower of Christ in the age of the church. That is why we are studying Hebrew. That is why there's no doubt in my mind, among many other things, that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. In Revelation chapter 21, all of this comes forward to the perfection. Verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I mentioned that if you look at verse or chapter 20 and verse 13, see here, I believe, refers to, and it does from Genesis to Revelation, the, the cesspool of sinners, if you will. So I don't think he's talking about water there. But anyway, verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful, as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. We just read that in Jeremiah 31. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The same one that made the heavens and the earth is making the new heavens and the new earth here. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So there's no doubt that the son is speaking here. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7, as Paul is connecting all of those dots from Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So the the core of the gospel in Hebrews are in these verses that we will now read, verses 18 through 25. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. He's referring to two things here, that the law could make no one perfect. He's not saying that the law is useless. He's saying that the priesthood is useless because the priesthood was established and enforced by priests who were going to die. The law was put in place which could never save anyone. So in other words, if Christ doesn't come, this one in verse 16, on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, then there is salvation for no one. So verse 18, the former regulation is set aside because it is weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. Every person whose hope is to be good enough in accordance to the law will spend eternity in hell. And, he goes on, a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, like Aaron's two sons who God struck dead because they didn't acknowledge him as God in authority. Verse 21, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, right back into Psalms 110 and verse 4. So this statement is made in real time with God, as we live in time and he doesn't, before creation. He says to his son, your throne, O God, is established forever. I have sworn and will not change my mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. No genealogy, no father and mother, no beginning, no end. The, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. 
uh, the power of an indestructible life. You, my son, in the order of Melchizedek, are priest forever. In our understanding of that, that statement comes a thousand years before Christ, long after the law was established, through David. When David makes that statement, he informs all who don't know that way before David, almost 1,100 years before David, Melchizedek meets Abraham, offers him bread and wine, and offers him and makes the promise. He blesses him, and he calls himself God Most High and Creator, and he meets Abraham, who is in the middle of enemy territory, be like being in World War II, dropped in the middle of Germany, all alone, and he meets Melchizedek. And the first thing he does is he sets out bread and wine, which is where one day Jesus would say, the new covenant in my blood. He is making the first covenant with Abraham, and he is establishing this with Abraham. David says that that Melchizedek is God's son, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Psalm 110 begins. Your throne, O God, Hebrews chapter 1. All of this is pointing to the only one with an indestructible life who is willing to give his life so that we can live. Reading on verse 22, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. The one that we read from Jeremiah 31. The one that he introduced on that night that he would be betrayed. Verse 23. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, and remember forever is both directions. Everlasting is from now on. Forever is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, Aleph and Tav, all of those things. Verse 25, maybe the most important gospel theology verse in the Bible. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So there are hundreds of verses in the Bible that help us help the Bible explain to us, once you are his, you are always his. But there is no verse like Hebrews 7.25 that says how that is. He is the guarantor, verse 22, because verse 25, he intercedes for us 24-7. He always lives to intercede for us. A priest represents people before God. This priest lives forever before God representing us. To the one who is victorious, I will give all of this, Revelation 21, because Jesus never stops interceding. The reason we are once saved, always saved, is Hebrews 7.25. We have this picture in Zechariah chapter 3. We have this picture in um, Revelation chapter 12 
of Satan always accusing the followers of Christ. And we have this picture in Hebrews 7.25 of the Son of God before God, Satan accusing, Christ interceding, mine. They are mine. Look at what they're doing, Satan might say. Look at the filth. Look at the sin. Look at the things that Satan can say to us and think, you know what, he's right. Christ says to us, I am the guarantor, not you. It is my righteousness, not yours. It is my perfection, not yours. It is my interceding before the Father that keeps you safe. So that, this is the primary reason, whatever I do now is for him. It's not for me. Most religions is doing and touching and tasting and eating and sprinkling and washing because they describe those things in their theology as a means of grace. More grace, more grace, more grace. We're going to see these three words often as we go through the rest of Hebrews. Once for all. Anything that we believe that we are doing so that we can be saved empties the cross of its power, empties the value of what Jesus did on the cross, and it alters my reason for everything. If I believe I need to do things to stay saved, then I will never do anything for him. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You're not earning it. You're not getting closer to getting it. If you follow Christ, it is yours. Turn to Romans chapter 8 as these parallel passages are laid out by Paul. We go from the central chapter in Hebrews to the central chapter in Romans one written to Jew, Jewish believers, one written to Gentile believers, same message. Romans chapter 8, picking it up in verse 23. Not only so, he's been talking about creation groaning for what Enoch prophesied, so that Creation can be renewed. But Paul says here, not only so, but we ourselves, followers of Christ, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We are the first people to have the Spirit. We are the only people who have had the Holy Spirit indwell us. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul's going to explain in this chapter that from God's perspective, the Son has been priest forever since before creation. You have been everything that God called you to be since before the creation. But from our perspective, there are stages. There is the, the, the fact that we are immediately saved from the penalty of sin. We are currently being saved from the power of sin. 1 Corinthians 1.13 One day we will be saved from the presence of sin in a body like Christ the full adoption as sonship. 
So creation is longing, and we as believers are longing. Verse 24, for in this hope, Hebrews chapter 6, put in the inner curtain by Christ himself as an anchor for our souls, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. I wish religion could just grab onto that and know it. There's nothing you can touch, nothing you can do, nothing you can receive or experience religiously. If you can see it, it's not hope. Our hope is in heaven. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? What Abraham hoped for, he never saw. What we hope for, we have not seen yet. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Patience and perseverance are often interchangeable. This isn't we're sitting in a chair waiting for the rapture. It's we're serving knowing that it is coming. In, this same, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Look at that last statement there. The Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance for the will of God. So what does verse 26 mean? Verse 26 isn't, well, I'm going to pray and I just can't think of the right words. God just, I know what I want to pray. Give me the right words. That's not what verse 26 is saying. Verse 26 is saying, um, 1 John 5, 14, if we know that what we ask is in his will, we know that he hears us, and we know that we have what we've asked for in his will. Verse 27 here, in accordance with his will. What do the wordless groans that the Spirit does? The Spirit knows God's heart. The Spirit knows my heart. If, if, if there's an alignment problem, I'm not going to move God in line. He's going to move me in line. So that what I now pray, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now that I'm in line with the will of God, Jesus says in John chapter 15, um, about verse 7, that he will give you from that place everything you ask for. So the Spirit knows our spirit and God's spirit and he is trying to align us with God. And if he can do that, there's no eloquence required. There's no specific wording required. There is simply, thy will be done. Answered. The Bible tells us. Verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Agaposin, Greek there. People who are loving towards God. All through John 14, 15, 16, 1 John, first four chapters, love is obedience to Christ. So for those who are loving him have been, and have been called according to his purpose, again, at end of verse 27, in accordance with the will of God, here's what verse 28 is saying. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. What is God's purpose on earth? It is verse 29, beginning there. 
For those God foreknew before the creation of the world, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. There is no circumstance, no position, no jail cell, no hospital bed, no quadriplegic, nothing on earth. As long as a human being has brain waves and is able to think, there is no circumstance that God cannot work for the good of that person by making them more like Christ. That's primary objective of God, number one, always. The primary objective of God is not to save people from hell. It is to make human beings like Christ. Ultimately, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, we will be made like him in image. What he is really interested in is making us like him while it's our choice, while it's difficult to do. Verse 29, he begins this progression that you have in your notes. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, number two, to be conformed, number three, or into the image of his son, that's the predestination itself, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Hebrews chapter 2, he calls us our brothers and sisters. Jesus does. Verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So from the perspective of God, outside of time, before the creation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, he chose us, before creation in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight, all of this happened through the foreknowledge of me making Christ Lord. Because he knew that I would do that, foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, glorified, done. It is completely finished. An omnipotent, omniscient God looks at a sinner on earth in the picture of a glorified Christ-like body in heaven. That's why everything in this list is in past tense. He doesn't do it in our relationship to time. He does it in his. So in your notes there, foreknowledge, and this is so important to Calvinism and so many other things, Paul always puts things in perfect order. Foreknowledge and predestination are not the same thing. There is an order to them. There is no verse in the Bible that says God predestined people to not be saved. John 3.17, who does God condemn? No one. What God does predestine, Genesis 2.15.16 and 17, is that if you choose my son, I'll make you like him. Romans 8, 29. If you don't choose my son, hell, wrath, and judgment is yours. I'll explain that to you. I'll show that to you. The choice is going to be yours. I do not predetermine your decision. I do predetermine the outcome. It has already been decided before you choose what yes, Lord, will be and what no will be. 
that's predestination. So foreknowledge is God already knows what you're going to choose. He completely puts that in your decision. He predestines what the outcome of your decision will be, and he informs us clearly in the Bible, for example. He told Adam, by the way, from the beginning, what the outcomes would be. And then we are called, we can look up verses in the Bible, we are called, like John chapter 15, to follow Christ and to bear fruit. Those are the calls to follow Christ. Follow me, as he says to his disciples, and he says to you and I, and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. That's what he says to his disciples on that same night from the upper room, that I called you, I chose you, I appointed you to bear fruit. And that pleases my father, he explains in John chapter 15. Then he justified us from that place. He paid our debt, and as it says many times in the Bible, once for all. Not only once and for all, meaning the cross is the only time he's going to make a payment, but once he paid for all sins. Every person in hell has had their sins paid for. They cannot be put on the account of Christ if he is not Lord. But God so loved the world, the Bible says. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every lost person, every atheist, every Christ blasphemer has had their sins paid for. Romans eleven thirty two. God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. All, once for all. And then finally the perfection that we saw that is coming in Revelation 21. Let's go back to Hebrews 7. Oh, wait, I wanted to read the rest of Romans 8. Sorry about that these beautiful verses that Judy read and a few before them. Think of the position that foreknowledge, predestination, calling us, justifying us, and glorifying us puts us in when we follow Christ. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, if he's done all that for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you think he's going to give you all of his inheritance? Yes. How can you think that? Wait a minute. He went to the cross. Verse 32. If he did that, and he says he's going to make me an heir of all things, Romans 4, how could I not believe it? He's already shown that he keeps his promises. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one from heaven ever condemns a human being. Paul makes crystal clear in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 11, that the only reason that a person will be in hell isn't sin. 
the only reason a person will be in hell, according to the Apostle Paul, is because they refused the truth that God offered them. If the reason for people in hell was sin, we'd all be there. If we accept his offer, we will be in heaven undeservedly, but we will be in heaven. So verse 34, um, who then is the one who condemns? No one. It is the individual who will condemn themselves by saying, I don't want you as my Lord. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, Hebrews 7.25. Here he is saying it to the Gentiles. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, and this is Paul's testimony, that he's quoting here, but it's his testimony. For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus. You were chosen in him. How many times that Paul must say those two words, in him, um, over and over and over again. First Thessalon or Second Thessalonians 1, verses 6 through 9. You will be separated from the love of God if you leave this earth without following Christ. So David writes Psalm 2, Psalm 72, and Psalm 110, which Paul keeps preaching from as Solomon is going to the throne. And God tells David, I will never remove my love from Solomon like I removed it from Saul. Saul committed suicide and the love of God stopped. And the love of God that we saw on the screen that is expansive beyond anything we can do, if your answer remains no, when you stop breathing, the answer is no. And there is nothing that God can do for you. But Paul says of us who follow Christ, nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Back to Hebrews 7. Verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens that we just saw a, a little glimpse of. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Listen to this statement. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. 
For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath back in Genesis with Melchizedek and then Genesis 22, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. So in this bringing everything forward, the oath isn't announced until 1,100 years after it happened through David. And David says, you, Lord, my son, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. There are more verses in your notes there in Hebrews. We will just allow them to unfold as we go forward as Paul is reiterating the same things, driving those things home to us. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. And I, I pause here again. In your hearts revere Christos as Kyrios. In other words, your addressing of Christ is Lord. We see that over and over again. So Christos is anointed one, prophet, priest, king. Lord is Kyrios, master. So he says, as he is sending us out to witness, as he is sending us out to give testimony to the resurrection of Christ and telling people repentance for the forgiveness of sins and becoming heirs of everything in heaven because this same one who spoke creation into existence died on the cross for your sins and mine. As you go with that message, go from a place where you revere Christos, Messiah, as Lord, Master. I'm going for you as master, reading on. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. We've seen the word hope probably 10 times between Romans 8 and Hebrews um, 7 today. But do this with gentleness and respect. So we have these bookends here. Be gentle and respectful. Don't, don't be holy and righteous and greater than thou, be a sinner to a sinner, and be going for your master. If you have that in place, you're going to be meek, humble, and gentle the way Christ is, if he would approach someone. So bring the truth in love, Paul would say in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Don't, don't respond the way you're being responded to by someone who is speaking maliciously. Be gentle and respectful, keeping Christ in mind. Verse 17, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If you're going to suffer, do it like Christ. Don't defend Jim, verse 15, defend Christ. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. 
he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago. We know that back in Genesis, they already had the message. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a Bible for 2,700 years. But Adam was told the gospel in Genesis chapter 2. It is explained in Genesis chapter 3. Abel knew the gospel because he was obedient. Um, Cain was given the gospel twice and he refused to obey. We know that a person born a couple of generations, six of them after Adam, was preaching the gospel to everyone, saying that the person who is offering this free will to you is saying that if you don't, then he is coming to judge the world with thousands upon thousands of holy ones. Make your decision, Enoch was saying. We know that Noah knew the truth because he preached it for 120 years while he was building the ark. It has always been there. We knew that Abraham heard. So to those who were disobedient long ago, the first part of Romans chapter 5, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And people will take that verse and stop right there. See, water saves you. It's a means of grace. You need to be sprinkled. You need to be dipped. You need to do something because that's salvation. No. Noah was preaching the spiritual reality of following Yahweh or refusing to follow Yahweh. And the ark was given as a picture to everyone on earth, salvation. The ark is literally, Peter's going to explain, a picture of Jesus Christ. So Hebrews, or excuse me, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Paul says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the gospel, the message of your salvation, having believed you were placed in him with a seal, who is the Holy Spirit, which is the promise guaranteeing your inheritance. So they were given a visual as Noah was entering the ark. They went in the ark. God the Father, not a human being, and not read Genesis 6 through 8. Noah didn't shut the door. God did. And he sealed those who believed in the ark, which is a picture of God and the Holy Spirit sealing people in Christ. Noah understood that. Noah preached that. His hearers understood that. They said, no, thank you. And probably people very close to Noah were pounding on that same ark as the floodwaters began to come. So reading on, verse 21, Peter explains the purpose of the ark. And this water symbolizes baptism. It's not baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt. In other words, we're not talking about water here from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, long before Peter writes this, and Peter at the end of this letter will say how much he pays attention to Paul's letters and teachings, Paul says you must confess him as 
kurios, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That that decision is heart, not intellect. Intellect has to come. God gave us an intellect to understand the offer, but if the, if the offer stays here and it doesn't go to our heart, then it's not genuine. John chapter 2, several other places. Jesus knew who truly believed in him. He didn't have to ask because he knew what was in each person's heart. We do what our heart tells us to do. And Paul says that, and look at Peter saying the same thing. The pledge of a clear conscience towards God. Lord, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second half of Romans 10, 9, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's not water, Peter says. It's not the cleansing of dirt from your body. It's a clear conscience commitment to Christ. And it is a belief that the cross was enough for me who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So while he is interceding for us, the angels, the authorities, and the powers are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And they're talking about God's Son. Heavenly Father, Help us to know your son better. In Jesus' name, amen.